podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome all you QT faithful to our fourth Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of our major scenes from the movie of the month. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott Kate, and it is my pleasure to welcome a new guest to the Bible study. He's a musician and podcast host of Conversations from Jackrabbit Slims, the Slycast and Big Screen Book Club, Mr. Craig Cohen. And together we will be taking a deeper dive into the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Pulp Fiction, Chapter 8, The Adrenaline Shot Scene. Welcome, Mr. Cohen, and may Tarantino be with you always. And you as well. That was Thank you. Uh, that was a great introduction. Thank you for that. I, I was looking up your stuff, and I was like, "Wow, he's done a hell of a lot more than I've been doing." And I feel like I've I've kind of uh, behind the eight ball. You're a musician. You've got a whole bunch of stuff going. You've done a ton of podcasts, and here I am just mulling along on the fourth episode. I'm sorry, I got some. Oh no, some worries here, and of course they're picking up the trash. Hey, you know, it sounds a little bit like your dog barks a little bit like the dog that's on the episode during the Gold Watch when he's watching that Eskimo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he he Arctic Tundo foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we all know that COVID hit and I had some podcasts prior to COVID, but here living in Las Vegas, this city got hit really, really hard. And I was furloughed for 15 months. So, wow. and there was nothing to do. So I was able to sort of explore my passions even further. And I had been thinking about doing a Pulp Fiction podcast for probably about four years, but just never had the time or really the concept completely hashed out. I knew I wanted to sit down with a different person every episode and talk about the movie, but it never really got beyond that. So once I didn't have anything to do but sit at home and, and spend time with myself, I decided to explore it. So that's where uh, that show came from. And uh, it kind of fell off when I went back to work because I just work in a job where 
you know, takes up a lot of my time. And when I get home, my, my dogs want to spend time with me. My wife wants to spend time with me. So um, something's got to give. And at the same time, I sort of rediscovered my love of music. So during the pandemic, I also put out um, two full-length instrumental albums and, a, and an EP. So wow. you're a creative person. So you know you only have so much creative gas in the tank yes. and, and where you're going to devote it to. But um, it's great to see you sort of devoting a wider look at Tarantino because uh, as you've stated on your show, nobody's dedicated a podcast to all the films of Tarantino. So um, it's cool that people have that exploration now. And I, I did want to say, and we'll probably get into this when you when you ask me about it, but we're both from a time that like when Pulp Fiction came out, there wasn't the internet to go home and Google no, stuff. No, so. it really hadn't come out yet. No. It was a lot of sitting around talking about it and just diving yeah. in and, and, yeah. and basically fanboying over it. Yeah, yeah. And then like even like, you know, reading interviews with Quentin and like hearing movie references and then, you know, finding those videos. I remember we had a, a like a swap meet in New Jersey where I used to live and there was one little booth that would sell like bootleg Hong Kong films. So that's like where I got City on Fire and all the Chow Yun Fat stuff. You know, it, it's great now because you can just go online and Google something yeah. and, and you, you can become an expert overnight. But um, when, when Pulp came out or even when Reservoir Dogs came out, you know, we didn't have that kind of access. So, no. uh, but it's also great that some kid might watch, you know, Kill Bill for the first time and, and Google Tarantino and they're going to find your show. And yeah, the, yeah, the, hopefully you know, they're going to have a, a, a great little bit of content to, to go through. It saves them a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm doing all the heavy lifting. The one thing like what you said about that is the one disappointing thing, even though it is great to have everything at your fingertip, is there was something Indiana Jones about having to find it. You know, like someone saying, I think so and so is at this place has it. And you would just, mm -hmm. you know, you'd run there or, you know, or a buddy would have it and you'd get one of those double tape decks and you'd try to record it like there was something cool about trying to find the ark of the covenant so to speak in these in these hard to find you know dvds or not dvds vhs's yeah. you know what i mean uh -huh. especially from hong kong because there was no amazon you couldn't go online yeah. and be like i'm gonna order that from amazon like you had to yeah. either go to like a local video store mom and pop store and see if they had any kind of connection with some kind of like you know mm -hmm. foreign market distributors and stuff like that so yeah there, there was something cool about almost you know, like yeah. indiana jones minus the whip when we were that age yeah i I even remember when I found, God, I was at some convention, you know, Jersey was great at having like a lot of different conventions and stuff. And I remember when I found the Natural Born Killer script. And like, for me, I was like, well, is this real? Like, you know, you never know. Like, and uh, I remember just reading that and being like this, you know, it's, it's amazing what Oliver Stone did with the movie. I'm sure that's a whole nother discussion for when you get to natural born killers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we're recording this and that actually episode drops uh, this coming Friday. So, okay. but yeah, uh, like you said, though, uh, there was a time when there was mom and pop stores and malls that had the stuff. I have the marquees that used to be, you know, above the movie theaters, like the actual theater you'd walk into. Yeah. I have True Romance. I think I have Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. I have a couple of those. I have a bunch of the scripts. Uh, there used to be a store when I went to school out in Rochester, New York. They had this really great store. And I was able to actually buy one of the first, maybe it was like the third draft of it, but of From Dust Till Dawn after Pulp Fiction came out. So I read From Dust Till Dawn before it came out two years later. So okay. it's just one of those things where, you know, it, that was like the, my crack cocaine. You know what I mean? Like I had to have it. You know, I just I was, I couldn't wait to go do it. Now, I do love the invent of the Internet and the ability to have it all. But like I said, I, I do sometimes miss mining for the gold and, and being that one person who has it as opposed to like 20,000 people now, you know, easily have. And it's almost like... Like, oh yeah, I've got that. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. doesn't have that same like it, it's it's not well it, it doesn't mean as much. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, since you're my first guest, you're actually my not only my first guest on the Bible study, but you're my first American guest. All four episodes I've done up to this point have all been people from across the pond in the UK. Just happened oh, wow. to be just the way it kind of fell. So you're our first Native American. You're our, I shouldn't say Native American. Yeah, you're yeah. our first American born. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and like you know, as you listen to it, it's customary for me to ask questions prior to the film mm-hmm. and then after the film. So since mm-hmm. you're going to be on another one, since we're doing two this month, I will ask you the five main questions that I normally would ask a guest when we do the film episodes, just to give yeah, yeah. you the fairness. And plus, I love to hear the answers. Awesome. I already know what the favorite movie is, but we'll, I'll ask it anyways when it gets <laughs> yeah. there. And this is almost redundant um, and rhetorical, but are you a Tarantino fan? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. My fandom has wavered sort of over the years. When I was on, listening to your podcast, I've yeah. heard you talk to different people about some f- movies you just love and some you're like, eh, take it yeah. or leave it. But at the end of the day, you can't not respect every attempt he makes because in 2022, there aren't many filmmakers that have the ability and even the the financial backing to do something that is wholly theirs, you know? I mean, you might think Christopher Nolan's got that kind of pull, um, a Martin Scorsese or something like that, but there are very few filmmakers that can say, this is the movie I'm making, uh, take it or leave it. And Tarantino's done that through his entire career. So yeah, like I've said on my show, I've wavered a little bit. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really sort of re-energized me. Uh, on my show, I've called it sort of like a spiritual cousin to Pulp Fiction. It does have a definitely feel because he goes back to almost almost a three-story arc, except you know mm-hmm. he kind of keeps it all together, but we do jump from three main characters and, and their different stories where they eventually meet up at the end. Yeah, yeah. And they're both kind of like cool hangout movies. You can just put them Agreed. on and hang out with your friends and, and watch them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on board for, for anything Tarantino um, puts out. I'm a, I'm a fan. What was your gateway drug into the Tarantino universe? Yeah, it was actually Pulp Fiction. I remember... I probably saw it the second weekend it came out. My memory is not 100% perfect, but it was definitely in that the opening two weeks or so. And I remember my mom and, and my stepdad actually went and saw it opening night. And my mom came home and she's like, you have to go see this movie. <laughs> so uh, I finally found my way there and I was I was hooked. It was like... You know, it was like mainlining a drug or something. It was like in my blood immediately. Agree. I couldn't wait to get back in line to see yeah. it again. You know, yeah. it, was, it was, it's like an experience that I, I've seen a lot of movies and I've had some experience, but I can't remember an experience as, as exhilarating or as like just mind altering as that experience was to see that film. It was something I'd never seen before. And a lot of tried to copy it since. And I've had good times at the movies, but it felt like an event movie. It felt like, you know, what people probably felt like because I was barely alive when people stood in line for Star Wars and didn't know what they're getting into. You know, like I feel Uh like it's that touchstone moment, like 20 years later down the road or almost just side of 20 years, you know, after Lucas hit Star Wars and the the world goes crazy pop culture wise, Pulp Fiction does the same thing in the 90s again. Yeah. And I mean, in, in this day and age, it's hard to sort of, you know, recognize how unique it was because we had that whole rash of sort of Tarantino-influenced movies in the 90s, and you still see them today. Like, there's still Quentin Tarantino-type movies, but yeah, in in 94, when that hit, it was just so unique and so different, and it wasn't completely, you know, original in the sense that he was doing something that nobody else had ever done before, but it was the presentation and I think the commercial scale, Um, and it was really kind of like a return to that 70s, the sort of, you know, approach to filmmaking, Agreed. you know, and it, so it, it kind of hit and kind of felt kind of fresh. And the great thing about it was movies played for a long time back then because <laughs> yes, they did. Um, Cause so we didn't have a tentpole go, every week. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to go see it multiple times. And I remember actually when it came out on home video, I had reserved it from Suncoast um, and it was still playing at the dollar 
theater not yeah, far from my house. Yeah, that's another thing that's disappeared is the dollar theaters <laughs> yeah. are really like kind of like the um, the drive-ins. They've kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. And you know, like the dollar theater was great, but then there wasn't digital. That was film. So you would have oh, the yeah. clicks and the pops and maybe oh. some of the scenes have been burned because they've been playing for too long. Like you never know what you're going to get when you went to see it at the dollar theater because it would, you know, it wouldn't come fresh. It would come from one of the major movie houses. They would send it over to them. Yeah, yeah. So I remember I went and saw like the first showing at the dollar theater. And then as soon as it was done, I got my car, drove to the mall, went to Suncoast, got the VHS and watched it again when I got home. But then the other beautiful thing about discovering Tarantino via Pulp fiction was i had reservoir dogs waiting for me too so yes probably the day after i saw pulp fiction i went to the video store and bought reservoir dogs blind because i knew it was going to be a movie yeah that you I, knew you I, knew right I away loved. yeah and it's funny because reservoir dogs is a movie i probably haven't watched in i want to say 15 years at this point just because scott i wore that tape out <laughs> i watched it front to back probably more times than i can count you know it was just like watch the movie Go take a piss, rewind it, get some snacks, start it back up. Because it's only like 90 to 100 minutes. It's his yeah. shortest film he's put out there. Yeah. So thankfully, I had Reservoir Dogs to, you know, to sort of hold me over. And then I, I don't know if, if people really realize how challenging it was to be a Tarantino and a Pulp Fiction fan uh, in 94. Because, you know, nowadays, I guess three years isn't a long wait. But we had to wait like three years for Jackie Brown, which felt like an eternity yeah. to me. <laughs> Well, again, uh, if you've listened to my other podcast, my gateway drug was True Romance the year before. Mm-hmm. And buying the True Romance VHS on the back, it said, from the creator of Reservoir Dogs. So I was able to jump into Reservoir Dogs. And then I, as I was going to college, I was reading one of the entertainment magazines talking about how Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers were coming out. So I knew Natural Born Killers would come out. You know, I knew that he didn't really have his hands in it, but I went to see that. And I was in college, and we rented The Crow. And the preview on The Crow, since it was by Miramax, was Pulp Fiction. And my roommate at the time, who I only say his first name in case he listens, because I don't want to out him completely, named TJ, <laughs> said, that movie's going straight to VHS. Pulp Fiction. Oh, Little did he know that it would be the, one of the, the biggest movie to ever hit. It was a seven-time Oscar nomination. But yeah. if TJ, if you're listening, you were so fucking wrong. So fucking wrong. <laughs> Huge mistake. Yeah, like, like, talk about not, like, you know, Almost like ah, electricity. That'll never be a thing. That's how wrong he was. But yeah, uh, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. So I guess we could skip question three because I already know your favorite Tarantino movie. I'm assuming is the one we're talking about today. Yeah, and and again, not to not to repeat myself, but you know, if I was gonna go to a movie, uh, go to my shelf and grab a Tarantino movie to watch this afternoon, it would probably be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But oh, very nice. Pulp Fiction will hold a, a spot in my heart forever. But again, Pulp Fiction's a movie that's like part of my DNA. It's a movie I've seen. I've probably seen like RoboCop and Death Race 2000 more times <laughs> uh, just because those are two of my other favorite movies. But yeah, so, you know, like for me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is still fresh enough. I, you know, I've probably only watched it three times. Okay. And of course, I've read the book, which is just fantastic, such a, such a crazy ride and mm-hmm. such a cool sort of companion piece to the movie because it diverts at certain points and goes in different directions and the climax of the film is kind of just referenced you don't actually get it so which i really 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 i I like that novel a lot more than i thought i would um and i don't know why i sort of went in with with reservations i i just love the approach he took and and i know that he's putting out a a book on like 70 cinema next that's like his next book and he's also commented that he's written two chapters already of a book which he hasn't said if it's during, pre, or after, and I've heard it's also like kind of a combination, but of Reservoir Dogs, he might be writing a prequel, sequel, 
current, like what you're missing, filling in the gaps kind of thing of Reservoir Dogs. So, and I wonder how much yeah. of him writing the book spawned Michael Mann to write a sequel to yeah. Heat. Which is very interesting, which is a prequel slash sequel. I wonder how much of, you know, Tarantino dipping his toes into the water and writing is pushed Michael Mann to do the exact same thing. Yeah, I know that Michael Mann has been threatening to do something heat related for quite a few years. So (laughs) maybe um, uh, Quentin's success with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has sort of convinced the money people to be like, hey, there's money to be made here. You know, there's fans out there that are going to buy that stuff. And I mean, heat is just like such a it's hard to find a movie that's more you know across the board respected like there's few movies that are like truly bona fide and heat's one of those movies yes. that like in, unless you find a really really stuffy critic you're not going to find anybody saying a bad word about heat that's like i am actually one of them oh really <laughs> on my old podcast watch this or die we were supposed to do for our 70th or 60th episode we were going to do heat and then unfortunately things happened and i've talked about it earlier but for me, I love Heat until the end. I always feel that the end is awful. Uh, I feel it's just a cliche ending. Good guys got to win. And I wanted to do that podcast so I could go into it. I don't want to do it on this one. Yeah. But at some point, maybe maybe I'll just resurrect that for one day. I'll bring you on and we can have a conversation of why <laughs> I love Heat until the end. I yeah, think no, Michael I, Mann and his endings, that and then um, Collateral, I think his endings are terrible. After such a great movie, I feel like it's like they gave him complete control of the movie, and then at the end, they're like, we've got to have the good guys win. Yeah. And then it just completely destroys the stories. It just, but again, that's for another time. <laughs> we'll, I'll keep this one moving along so we don't turn it into a heat compendium where I'll suddenly. No, no, absolutely. Oh, that's, that's, that's really. Um... No, and, and it's a fair point. I mean, it's, it's definitely a fair point. I mean, I think most movies live and die by their ending. Oh, great. A bad ending can completely torpedo a movie or it could just slightly sour you on the movie. But I mean, it's one of the hardest, I think. Even like TV one shows the, like Sopranos. Yeah. A lot of people are soured <laughs> on that one. And Seinfeld, one of the most beloved comedies ever. People hate that last episode. On that note, in your opinion, what's his most underappreciated film? I have to say that I think the right answer is probably Jackie Brown. I think a lot of people don't give him the credit for that. He was adapting an Elmore Leonard novel, which was a really gutsy thing to do after coming off of Pulp Fiction. Um, and it's a really mature film. I mean, look at your two leads. They're yeah. they're middle-aged people. Yeah. So I have a, a, I'm a big Elmore Leonard fan. So As am I. But I want to say that I think a lot of people don't give Death Proof the Thank you. credit it deserves. Thank you. And I got to say that I'm all about Grindhouse. I saw Grindhouse twice in theaters. It's fantastic. Grindhouse was an amazing cinematic experience. Seeing those two movies together with all the trailers and stuff sold it for me. I know that individually they came out with extended cuts. Mm-hmm. And, and thankfully, the Blu-ray uh, did restore it to the, the Grindhouse uh, format. But I just got to say, I think a lot of people, they just, I think there's unfair criticism of Death Proof. Tarantino was making a Grindhouse film. It was his take on a slasher film. I love it. If you sit down and watch the technical aspects of it, there's a scene when they're talking about Butterfly with that one girl with the the afro comes and sits down with them and, you know, does the whole Butterfly thing. And and she learns about that there's been this thing Jungle Julie put out. And there's a moment, and Tarantino does it intentionally, but they're backing up. They're doing a tracking shot away, and it bumps a table and pushes back in. Like, that's intentional. Like, he did all this stuff. Like, that first half of that movie, he is totally doing everything he can with along with Sally Menke and editing to make it feel like this movie's been chopped up and thrown mm-hmm. through a grinder. And then the second half of the movie, he doesn't keep doing that, but he's kind of focuses more on, like, this being a car stalker kind of movie. Yeah. So he does an amazing job with it. And 
I'm glad you said Death Proof because I feel the same way. I think Death Proof, you know, the more you watch it, the better it becomes and the greater of a movie truly, truly is. Yeah. And also in this day and age, seeing a movie that was made in what the late 2000s that was doing car stuff all practically, there's no CGI in there. You know, it's Zoe Bell on the roof of a car. God, unbelievable. At high speeds. Doing the shit she's doing. And I mean, I've talked about it on, on my other podcast before is like when you see something in movies now, and I'm not bagging on modern movies by mm. any means, but your eye can tell when something isn't real. Yes. Your eye can tell when a car flipping over is a computer version of a car flipping over. Um, it's almost got like video game syndrome. Yeah. So when you see something like Death Proof that is is real and practical and like George Miller does this with his Mad Max films. Your brain is processing this and saying, holy shit, they're doing this, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, somebody could die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they figured out a way to do it safely, but there's still an element of danger to it. And I think that's the other thing that's really underappreciated about Death Proof is, like, Tarantino was like, sure, I can go in a computer and create all these models of these cars and stuff, but he didn't. And you've got Kurt Russell. So, like, I mean, right so there, good. that should end any so argument good. about exactly. Death Proof. Thank you. You know, exactly. not being a, a good movie. It's like so Kurt Russell. Good. Like, just oh. chewing it up. It's so good. All right, to wrap it up before we jump in, favorite character all time in the Tarantino verse? I know that's a loaded question. Oof. You know what? I want to say that right now, it might be Cliff Booth. Okay, that's a great answer. He's he, he's a great character. Uh, I didn't know if he could beat Aldo Rain until he did Cliff Booth. And I was like, God, I don't mind. They're tough, man. Those are <laughs> those are neck and neck dudes. Those are two tough dudes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's no wrong answer there. But um, I think I think just and and this might be sort of you know my understanding of his backstory through the book also sort of because once you've read the book and then you watch the movie again you're like man there's some sinister shit underneath the surface there <laughs> <laughs> and I mean yeah the I won't give it away but the wife scene when we find out yeah, what really happens on the boat it, it, exactly. is, is genius it's genius yeah, I wish you could have seen it cinematically it's been great yeah and I mean Brad Pitt. Earned his Oscar there. I mean, oh, agreed. You know. I mean, absolutely. He was just as good in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. I mean, but you know, Christoph Waltz is just so you yeah. know. But people forget about Gorlami. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of Pulp Fiction, chapter eight. This film, this scene, the adrenaline shot scene. What? made me want to see this movie when I was younger and um, weird to kind of tie this into what's going on in America right now, these banning of books that are going on. It's always when you're told something is dangerous or not good from people by other adults that you suddenly want to see it more. I remember hearing that during the New York Film Festival screening of Pulp Fiction, uh, the movie had to be stopped because someone at the time they said was having a heart attack. It ends up being the person basically passed out because they were also a diabetic, but the scene caused them to have a real reaction. In fact, during the New York Film Festival screening, an audience member fainted during the scene and the movie had to be stopped for 10 minutes. Initial gossip said the scene caused the man to have a heart attack, when in reality, he was a diabetic. The scene combined with his low blood sugar caused him to pass out. A few sips of Coca-Cola and some fresh air got him back on his feet and back in his seat. Honestly, at that moment when you're Tarantino, you gotta be like, bingo. You know, because yeah. that's going to send people to the theater to figure out what's so great about this scene that makes people, you know, pass out. Yeah, yeah, and, and not to not to reference another movie you've already talked about, but on your uh, one of your studies for Reservoir Dog, you talked about Wes Craven, that famous yes. West story about Wes Craven, the master of horror. You know, walking out of the ear cutting scene in when in you don't Reservoir even see Dogs. the ear get cut, exactly. which is the great part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. so yeah, no, that's a, that's an amazing ability Tarantino has, and and like you said, yeah, that makes you want to go see something. So when you went to see the movie. 
and this and again, you didn't, we never knew when the scene was coming up. So it wasn't like they were saying, well, at this time, you know what I mean? Like now, when I do this, I give away the chapter and the DVD slash Blu-ray slash uh, iTunes, you know, that you can find the scene we're talking about in. But at the time, you were sitting in the theater and you'd heard about it, but you didn't know when it was coming up. And then once you get sucked in, you forget about it. And then when it comes, what was your first initial reaction to this insane fucking scene? As we talked about in my regular podcast of this month, the setup of Jules telling Vincent about a man named Tony Rocky Horror being thrown off a balcony because he touched his wife's feet. That's what happens when you touch her feet. Yeah. What do you think happens when you let her OD? Like, yeah. how awful does it get for you if she ODs? I mean, let alone dies, but I mean, ODing alone, would, your mind is like, oh shit, he's fucked. Yeah. The thing that about this scene that hit me the most in theaters, and it's still an aspect of the scene that I really love, and it's going to be in the other scene we talk about as well on the next um, study, is... Tarantino's ability to have really intense shit happening, but at the same time, pepper it with moments of humor. And it <laughs> kind of makes you uncomfortable because you're like, I shouldn't be laughing here because of how serious things are. And, you know, it's that's a really, really hard, you know, trick to sort of play on an audience. And I, and I, one other scene I can cite in cinema that did it expertly is Toby Hooper's original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the dinner scene with Sally. Yes. Where it's this batshit crazy insane scene where she's held captive by these crazy lunatic cannibals. But there's moments in that scene where you want to laugh because grandpa can't, you know, hold the hammer. To, <laughs> yeah. um, and again, it's it's a really hard trick to pull. And I think that's the probably the greatest aspect of the adrenaline shot scene is it ramps up First of all, all of the anticipation of the shot. But at the same time, it, it keeps you off balance because, you know, Lance and um, <laughs> yeah. Lance his girlfriend a... <laughs> get in an argument about where the little black medical book <laughs> is. And it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where watching it with an audience, you know who your people are when they laugh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Get the shot. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, it was so important. Why don't you keep it? I don't know. Stop fucking bothering me. Yeah. It's just like yelling at each other. <laughs> if I knew where it was, I wouldn't be looking for it. Like, I mean, and, and there's certain, I, I mean, certain people just can't let themselves see the humor in it because of how intense things are. But, yeah. Um, Tarantino's a master at being able to sort of walk that sort of fine line where you're able to do both and not lose and not lose the scene. It's yes. it's tricky. The OD part, we'll talk about in a second. We'll, it'll kind of weave its way in here, and I'll, I'll explain why. But he is, you know, he's just a pothead just sitting there calmly eating his Fruit Brute. <laughs> yeah. Fruit Brute is a cereal from the older Monster cereal family. Fruit Brute, along with Yummy Mummy, Frankenberry, Blueberry, and Cow Chocula, made up the Monster cereals. However, Fruit Brute and Yummy Mummy were later discontinued. Quentin Tarantino has held onto a box and drops it into scenes from time to time. It has also appeared in Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Big throwback watching a television show. The movie that Lance is watching with Vincent is the Three Stooges short Brightless Groom from 1947. Quentin Tarantino is an avid Three Stooges fan, but couldn't get the rights from Comedy 3 to show them in the movie. So while the Three Stooges film appears on screen, the Three Stooges themselves do not. And then the phone rings, and it's so great because when you look back now, it's weird that he's answering a home phone and uh, <laughs> Vincent's on like this old set, he's got to pull out the freaking antenna and he's like, are you on a cell phone? Prank call! Prank call. It's so ridiculous. The telephone number that Vincent Vega dials when calling Lance from his cellular phone is 271 378 
different from the usual 555 prefix used in movies. Even though he doesn't dial an area code at that time when dialing from a cellular phone or a landline, an area code was not required if the number was from the same area code. So, assuming Vincent's area code was the same as Lance's, which is plausible since there were only five area codes in the Los Angeles area at that time, 213, 310, 714, 818, and 909, this means Lance's telephone number at the time must have been 213-271-3870. Assuming he didn't move or change his phone number, as of June 13th in 1998, it would have become 323-271-3870. I asked my guest on the regular episode is, why did no one come out when he crashes into Lance's house? Like, he brings his <laughs> Malibu in at Mach 5 across the yard and smashes yeah. into the side of his house. Looks like he takes almost down the freaking patio out front. And yeah. they're just out front dropping poor meat. Like you said, like, he's dragging, and then when they're arguing, he just drops her. And I love that Uma's just able to just, she just collapses like she would be dropped. Yeah. It's like they're having this argument, but no one steps out of their house. No one looks outside. My guest thought, because maybe the rest of the neighborhood knew that he was like a drug dealer and didn't want to be involved in anything. What's your take on that? Yeah, my take's similar. And I, I think Lance probably lived in a certain part of town that was not like crazy 24-7, you know, crime you know, and violence type of thing, but it was still a dangerous part of town that you didn't want to go through at night. So I think it's one of those things like when the sun goes down, you go in your house, you lock your door. You keep to yourself. Yep, exactly. (laughs) So I think it was one of those things, not my, not my business, not my problem, but yeah. And, and that's the other thing about Tarantino's Pulp Fiction universe that is so sort of cool as well is it's like, it's our reality, but it's not our reality. Like it, it feels like our our reality slightly shifted, you know, because um, it doesn't feel like the 90s. At times it feels like the 70s. Or 60s or 80s. Yeah, yeah. it's all over the place. Yeah, so, and and you're able to forgive a lot of things because of that. You're like, well, this isn't, obviously this isn't, (laughs) when I leave this theater, I'm not going to be in the same world they're in. Yeah, no, I Uh, I agree. and, And I think that's another cool thing that Tarantino is able to do is like, this is a movie. You know, the people in the movie don't know it's a movie. But it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, it's it's kind of not like, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've watched that show Peacemaker. Yeah, oh, love Peacemaker. But, yeah. <laughs> love Peacemaker. I absolutely adored it. But I think the cool thing about the opening of Peacemaker is right from the get-go, it's like, this is a comic book show. Uh, and that dance sequence says, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of serious shit goes on in the show, but... We're opening the show with a dance sequence. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, remember remember where you are type of thing. And I yeah. think that's another thing with Tarantino, too, is like, you know, the fact that the wolf never gets pulled over for driving 90 miles an hour, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, the wolf is a complete contradiction, you know? He really is. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of just think that Lance lives in a neighborhood where his reputation and and then the, also the slight danger around that. Did you know that this part was actually written for John Cusack? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I, I know that Tarantino had considered taking it. In fact, Quentin Tarantino hesitated over the choice between the character he was going to play, Jimmy or Lance. The initial plan was that Tarantino would take one character and Eric Stoltz would take the other. Although Tarantino had originally intended for actors Jeff Goldblum, Steve Buscemi, or Bill Paxton to play the role of Jimmy, none of his choices were available and only... Stoltz could make the shoot. He ended up choosing Jimmy's role because time was running out on a casting deadline and because he really wanted to direct Mia's overdose scene. I think Cusack would have done a good job. I mean, Cusack's got that same kind of... Him and, and Eric Stoltz kind of exist in the same acting They do lane, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, I don't know if... Um, 
uh, Richard Roper came out with a theory, not maybe within the last two years, that the Eric Stoltz character of Lance in Pulp Fiction is the same dude from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and he sort like of graduated that. high school and just became <laughs> a, a drug dealer. So uh, it adds an extra little bit of weight to to Fast Times. And I don't think Tarantino's actually ever come out and acknowledged you know, whether or not that's true or not. I think he likes leaving a lot of that stuff for interpretation and just let yeah, it, it keeps a conversation going. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why put an end to someone talking about something when you can keep them talking? Oh yeah, absolutely. Now the other person I thought was interesting was that while the movie was still at Sony before it came to Miramax, Daniel Day Lewis was actually thought to be Vincent Vega. Yeah. That would have been a different movie. Yeah. I'm trying to put him in the same scene. Yeah. He would have been a lot more serious. Like him shooting Marvin in the face wouldn't have felt as funny. Yeah. He <laughs> yeah. would have felt a lot more intentional. Yeah. No, I mean, this, you know, say what you want about Travolta and especially like where his career's gone. I know. It's so sad. He it was it tanked. He's running it back. It tanks yeah, again. Yeah. I mean, Tar- Tarantino gave him a, a, another shot. But I, I think a lot of people forget how great Travolta's performance in this movie is. And, you know, Stunning. I mean, he shoots up. He, so he's on a heroin trip when he's out with Mia. And in the whole Jackrabbit Slim scene, you sort of see that. He, you know, yeah. he's, he's obviously in the middle of a heroin high. Well, yeah, he slowly comes down from it because we, we get confused Travolta meme. Doesn't know where <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. And then slowly um, he's able yeah. to win a twist contest. You know? Yeah. And, and I don't think people really appreciate, you know, the subtlety of that performance. And I, I won't say anything bad about Daniel Day-Lewis. He's a great oh, actor. Oh, he's an amazing actor. He, he's Absolutely. got his process, but... It would have been a really, really different, different film, movie, I agree. And a different film. So, you know, there is another, you know, if you believe in the idea of multiple universes, there is another universe where Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> played that part. And there's probably a podcast that talked about, you know, what if Travolta did it? Uh, but thankfully, we're in the universe where Travolta got to do it. <laughs> now, did you know that this scene was inspired by a documentary by Martin Scorsese? Yes. He made it. It was called American Boy, Profile of Stephen Prince, yeah. who was a roadie and a heroin addict. Uh, you can find this online. Now, the movie itself never was released, but um, Tarantino, when he was younger, found a bootleg copy of it. So there yeah. were some VHS copies made around, and you can find it on YouTube now. There's a scene where he's being interviewed, and he talks about a girl who's OD'd, and literally line by line kind of tells how you know they had an adrenaline shot, they had other stuff like oxygen and stuff, but that the girl had OD'd, and then him and his buddy were kind of arguing who's going to give her the shot. Tarantino Tino basically takes that and, you know, puts that into his his movie. And, you know, thank you to Stephen Prince for, you know, being able to add one of the greatest scenes in the Tarantino universe yeah. without his little actual, you know, real life. Friction can't beat real life. So I'd seen some articles as well. They were like, well, what's the real, you know, scientific reality of could this have happened? And I just want to go, look, I don't know if it could have happened, but Stephen fucking Prince right yeah. here. So heroin, he did it. So either mm-hmm. he's telling us a lie, which maybe, but like this guy back in the 70s was telling about what he had to do to save a girl's life. So I'm going to yeah, go with Stephen yeah. Prince. According to Annie Onishi, a general surgery resident at Columbia University, Tarantino's adrenaline shot isn't too far-fetched. The doctor says a milligram shot of adrenaline is just what real medical professionals would use if they were trying to kickstart the heart back to normal rhythm. However, Onishi criticizes Vincent Vega and Lance for spending too much time talking while Mia lays unconscious, but she confirms injecting the shot through the sternum is the correct way to administer the shot. Now, where Lance got the shot from is a whole other story, as intracardiac injections, such as the one he has, are only available to medical professionals or through a doctor's prescription. Yeah, and you know, that's not something I, I don't think I, I, I learned that fact until I started up the Jack Rabbit Slim show. But the other cool thing about that is you can say, oh, you know, Tarantino, you know, 
borrowed it or stole it or it was inspired by it. But that bootleg probably exists in Lance universe too. So who knows? I mean, Lance is in that business. Um, this isn't the first time Lance has seen somebody OD, you know? Not in his house, though. He doesn't bring any pooped yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> any poop so, I mean, it's not house. outside the realm of possibility that Lance had seen that tape or had heard about it through other circles. So then it's like, well, yeah, it's it's a riff on uh, American <laughs> Boy, but at the same time, like, that could be something that Lance knew and had always, you know, I mean, obviously he had the shot. So he did, but he couldn't find the black medical book. <laughs> yeah, but he knew it was an option. So at, at some point, somebody had said, hey, if somebody's ODing, an adrenaline shot to the heart. What I think is missed in this film, and now talk with you, and having done the podcast that will precede this yesterday, and, you know, having seen the movie most recently, and it's very fresh in my head now, what makes this movie feel right is, you know, we talk about these other movies like Heat, and you can talk about even Goodfellas. They're characters, and they're playing stereotypes of a world that we are kind of given that stereotype by the people uh, that we're seeing, but also that from the movie genre that we're used to, right? So there's these stereotypes of these gangsters, New York City gangsters. I mean, you lived in Jersey. Everybody was Italian down there. It's, it pretends they're so it's, they're always talking like this, you know, they're grabbing them shells. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> All the bullshit, right? And then, you know, you see it in heat. You know, everyone's a professional until the last moment, then they're not a professional. So we got all the tropes. Yeah. But what I was thinking about in this movie, and especially in the scene, because of the black medical book, and also something that he did earlier that he says he's not responsible for her overdosing, but he is, partially. The people are very real because they're idiots. They make yeah. simple mistakes. Uh -huh. they, you know, they're good at their job, but like Marcellus Wallace hires a bunch of fucking khaki-wearing nerds to grab one of the most important cases in the world. He leaves it to them, and then he has to send yeah. two hitmen after him to collect it. Mm -hmm. Even Vincent. Vincent doesn't ever put the safety on. He shoots Marvin in the face because he's just completely willy-nillying with things. He almost pisses off the wolf. And then you've got Lance here, who's supposed to be this, you know, a little degrading. Are we in Inglewood? You know, you're not buying <laughs> yeah. from a black heroin seller. You're buying from me in this neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, I'm some big yeah. shop. I don't know what uh -huh. my book is for the drama shot. And yeah. I've run out of balloons. And in the other episode, I talked about it, but balloons and baggies are huge. It's why Mia overdoses. Yeah. Baggies contain cocaine. Balloons yep. have always been the choice for heroin. Mm -hmm. And so, when he, he tells Vincent it's not his fault, it kind of is his fault. Like, if he yeah. had his uh -huh. shit together. So, that's yeah. what I love about the movie is that we have these characters who are, you know, supposed to be nefarious, but at the end of the day, they're just normal people like us, and they make stupid fucking mistakes that cause them great grievance throughout the entire film. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's probably, like, one of the biggest things that Tarantino sort of got from his love of Elmore Leonard. And, you know, if you read a lot of the Elmore Leonard stuff, it's the same thing. It's, you know, regular people get caught up in certain situations, and, you know, sometimes they're not the, the brightest people. Yeah, that's a great point about the character characters in this film. I never really thought about it before. I mean, we've debated a lot of, uh, you know, what Vincent's ultimate problem is. <laughs> <laughs> I think we determined on my show that at the end of the day, he's just an asshole. <laughs> yes. Yes. We talked about it as the movie goes on after the first scene of him, after this moment here, after him saving her life. And we feel like, oh, there was definitely some kind of something going on between the two of them prior to her ODing. After that, he's a real douchebag the rest of the film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, everything he does after this moment, he's a real asshole. And you don't, and you realize why he dies and does the stupid shit he does. Yeah, yeah, no, but that, no, that that is a, a great, um, and and that's why I love, that's why I love talking about movies, man. Is that you know you get uh, yeah. these different perspectives and you know you know people that, that you know sort of focus on certain aspects of things from a different sort of perspective from you so that's cool man it and that's why i love watching pulp fiction yeah. over and over again because it after this experience i'll watch it and then i'll see i'll see those elements of the characters and be like ah 
100%. One of my favorite turns in the scene is Rosanna Arquette's. First of all, she's pissed off that someone's calling. Yeah. <laughs> then she's like, what the fuck's this girl doing on our carpet? Uh-huh. And then they're yelling at her about a shot. And then he goes to find it. And she's like, what the fuck's a Mac medical book? I feel yeah. so important. Like She's nitpicking at him like a wife would. You know what oh, I mean? Man? I, I think <laughs> hey, everyone can, Oh, my God. Every I think every woman can see herself as, as Rosanna. And every man can see themselves as Lance. We've all been in that moment. And they're just arguing with each other. Yeah. But it's she's like, get this bitch out of here kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, though, she becomes the person who is the most excited to yeah, see she's what the, she's like a kid at Christmas. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. ooh, what's in this gift? Like, everyone else is like, even the audience members were like, what the fuck is about to happen? Yeah. And yeah. how is this going to work out? That little insert shot of her eyes getting bigger and the smile coming across her face. It's such a beautiful switch in the scene. Everyone else is tense. She's pissed. But then all, after a while, she's like, well, you know what? I am kind of interested. You know, I want to see how this is going to work out. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, her her performance is great. And and I think you sort of keyed in on something else, too, in the sense that, I mean, Quentin's composing all these shots. You know, Quentin's yes. in a tour. And you mentioned her earlier, Sally Menke, who unfortunately oh, is no longer I with know. us. But Phenomenal. I mean, editor. the touch that she brought to his films and the editorial hand that she brought. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I mean... Yeah, like I said, Quentin serves up those shots, but stringing them together and creating that moment, mm-hmm. there's nobody else like her. And, uh, no. you know, it's um, it's unfortunate. It's a damn shame she's gone. It's a damn shame she never won an award. I know. You, it, like that, 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 was, is, that is a travesty. Yeah. Her editing is unbelievable. To have the timing of yeah. the needle and how long do we hold on Lance it, and how long do yeah. we hold on Patricia, uh-huh. you know, just yeah. absolute genius. Yeah, no, it's, it's a master class in how to construct a, a scene and how to build tension. Yeah, she's great. Which is why the guy probably passed out. You know what I mean? It was so tense. Like he's just like, I can't take it anymore. And he's, he's he didn't have the same reaction as Rosanna did. He was yeah. not as excited to see what was going to happen when they plunged it in her heart. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Now I'm sure you know this. I mean, this is the movie you talked about for what was it 13 episodes? I believe mm-hmm. it was. But the actual plunging scene, yep. The editing part is easy. You can reverse film very easily. It's just you have to now to do it. You have to get in the mindset of you. You make the action, then you see what it looks like when you go reverse. But to act it in reverse, you know, mm-hmm. to do like uh, I've done a couple of um, videos where I've had for Star Wars, like Star Wars stuff, where it looks like you're force pushing stuff. All it really is is you're throwing it. Yeah. You're making the action. You're pretending you're you're catching it, but you're throwing it. And when you hit reverse, it looks like you're catching it and standing up with a lightsaber. Easy enough to do. But stabbing someone in the heart, so yeah. removing it, doing it in reverse, and having your actors react in reverse, that is genius. On That's a level of trust that Tarantino had in his actors and the ability of those actors to have the reaction of, okay, now I've got to remember what it's look like when he's going up and down, and now I've got to reverse that. Like, it's a that's tough. Yeah. You know? Try, yeah. to reverse, uh, try to reverse the reaction of a present being open. You know oh, what I mean? It's yeah. got to be hard. Yeah. You know what? I never, I never thought about that challenge uh on the acting side of things but the other thing i love about that is just like whatever foley they used for that thump when it when it hits her oh my god (laughs) which is great because he's got you know he says you got to get through the breastplate and you're like yeah uh dialogue leading up which is why this person passed out and why it's a tense scene is because your mind is starting to put together what it's going to be like Mm -hmm. and he's hitting on her chest like he's really pounding on it to make the noise and you gotta gotta get through the breastbone and and into her heart (laughs) and you're like yeah what we gotta do it does sound like someone's hitting like a, a tree with a bat yeah yeah, it's it's brilliant, a uh, brilliant bit of sound work. That was the most impressive part for me was learning that it's in reverse because yeah. I've watched it a hundred times, you know, and I know it's coming up, but I, I don't, my mind doesn't stop to go, oh, it's in reverse. And like you said, it's the editing. It's so quick so that when it comes down, we quickly go to it already in her chest. We see it come down, we hear it, 
and it's that sound, and then her, you know, coming up with it. Which, yeah. holy shit, give her credit on that. Yeah. Like that gasp to life. I, I couldn't find anything, but the girl who's <laughs> like the wallflower, who's just yeah. getting high on the couch, <laughs> um, Trudy, not the one with the shit in her face. Yeah. When you see Uma come to life, she like jumps back on the couch. I don't know if anyone knew how Uma was gonna pop up. Yeah. Like, she kills it because I uh-huh. really feel like that reaction is genuine. Like she's like, what the fuck, uh-huh. you know? Because all of a sudden this this woman who she thinks is dead is like just going flailing about you know absolutely absolutely yeah yeah it wouldn't surprise me if that was a scene that like tarantino didn't rehearse aside from the technical aspects of making sure everybody knew what their mark was but i mean there's something to be said for you know surprising actors yeah you're being paid to act but at the same time that sometimes you can't not you know, respond a certain way. I mean, there's that classic story from Die Hard where I was just gonna, I was like, yeah. if he doesn't bring this up, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yes. Alan Rickman, um, you know, he was doing the big, the big fall, and they were gonna count to three, and they dropped him at two. Yeah. So, that's so that reaction, reaction you see is... on his face is 100 percent real. He's like, yeah. oh shit, I wasn't ready. And I mean, that's you know, yeah, he was a great, he was a great actor, but yeah. that moment you needed to capture that yep. by really doing something to him. Yeah, because he was afraid to fall anyways, even though he's yeah, falling yeah. on the pad. Uh-huh. Uh, it happens in this movie, even though it's not the scene. But uh, the the table flipping by Samuel Jackson that was completely ad libbed by him when he flips the table, oh, yeah. and that's why the reaction from Frank Wally is so re- real because it's not in the script that <laughs> we're not flipping a table and he flips the fucking table and yeah, Frank Wally's yeah. like what the fuck mm-hmm. just pure genius within this scene. There are so many great little moments and little hidden things within the scene from like the board games that are in there. One of them's Operation. <laughs> In fact, the board games The Game of Life and Operation are both seen on a table while Vincent and Lance are administering the adrenaline shot. Earlier in the scene, while Lance is in the spare bedroom and he and his wife are yelling at each other, she calls him a pig. You can see a game called Show His Pigs in the room. If you are Lance, where the fuck's this medical book? Why wouldn't you keep it? <laughs> In the front, you know what I mean? Like, where, why wouldn't you? Like, it makes no sense. Yeah. That's what I was telling you. It was like, it's like some of these things they do, you just go, it's a head scratcher. Yeah. Like, why would you put yourself in this position? Yeah. You know what it is? It's one of those things where, you know, we've all lost something, right? And you know that moment where you're like, even if you don't remember it, where it was like, okay, I came home with my car keys. And instead of putting them where I'm supposed to every time, I went in the bathroom to take a piss or whatever and and put them there and said, okay, after I'm done, I'm going to have to bring them back out. So it was probably the same thing. Like Lance probably got that little medical book or whatever. And for whatever reason, he, you know, brought it wherever he did and he put it down and he was like, okay, I got to remember to put that away. And he never did. <laughs> <laughs> so right. it's, it's, it's with his that, ba- it's with his balloons yeah yeah right them. it's that little you know that little lapse in in memory that um you know that caused us to get this great scene on that note before we close it out have you ever had the opportunity to show this to someone for their first time and had the opportunity to sit there and kind of watch reactions because you know what's coming? Because there's quite a few. We're going to talk about one in a little bit, but there's some yeah. moments in here that you're like, oh, shit, if you don't see it coming, they're very surprising for the first time viewer. Yeah, yeah. Actually, before I started up the podcast, I watched this movie with my wife who had never seen it before. So we put on the Blu-ray one night and we got to watch it. So I got to watch, sort of see a first time viewer um, watching the movie. Um, she's not a fan. <laughs> it's like, it's a tough movie. I can understand. You know, I mean, if it's, if it's not your cup of tea, it's definitely not your cup of tea. Yeah. The great thing about this scene is it complete, like, you know, boom, she was locked in. She was on, you know, like on the screen, like, you know, I probably could have dropped a glass and broken it and she wouldn't have turned her head. <laughs> so yeah, I have been able to sort of, you know, see somebody experience it for the first time. And that's always cool. When the departed came out, I went and saw the, the yes. departed opening night yes. and there's that, shocking elevator sequence and you know i went back the next 
day and saw a matinee of it. Well, mainly because it was, I mean, I love the movie. It's a great movie. But yeah. just so I could experience seeing an audience, seeing that scene for the first time and like feeling the air come out of the room, you know, yes. there's, yes. it's so great to be in on the joke yes. and watching yep. other people experience it. And, and this is a great example of that. And that will do it for this month's Bible study. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Craig Cohen of the Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims Podcast for joining me this week. Now, be sure to tune in next week as Craig will be joining me once again, this time to discuss the infamous gimp scene from Pulp Fiction. Now, you can find links to all of Craig's podcasts in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials, which can also be found in the show notes as well. So, until next week, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.